Oh, how you doing? I had to, had to work myself up to do that one tonight. Yeah, I'm doing this in the evening time, and I realize that the energy level is probably a little mellower than usual. It will get better because the second half I recorded already this afternoon. How you doing? This is the ADL Driftwood Podcast, a day in the life with your host, Dave. Steve? Dave. That's me. Oh, man, oh, man. So I'm doing this one into my phone. The second half I recorded with uh, a really nice microphone in the studio. So the sound is getting better for the audio portion, the, the, the part where we talk about music. <sighs> Going to be sipping the lemon, uh, lemon and ginger tea all the way through this because I think in the second half, I'm sipping it too. So how do you like that sound? Nothing annoying about that. I do that to uh, my son <laughs> in the morning when I'm sipping coffee. I do it right right next to him. Just to let him know that I'm here and I'm annoying. And it's, it's subtly my payback for just the screaming, the shouting, the stepping on the private parts with the hard baby shoes, all of it. Yeah. Where was I going with all that? Uh, I've got a lot to get to. I'm pretty, pretty uh, tired today. So let's back it up. How's the drinking going? Not too good. So in this first half, we'll talk about, uh, you know the format by now. The first half, we talk about lifestyle and the way things are going. And the second half, we're going to get into some music. Uh, I play the guitar and the uke in this one. And we're looking at Hallelujah, I guess Leonard Cohen's big, big song. And Come a Long Way by Michelle Schacht. Two songs that have been in my repertoire for many years now. Love them. And uh, yeah, just wanted to share both those songs. I think the point that I'm making is following up last week's sort of talk about how songs move their way through people uh, and move their way through years and generations and change key. And how, remember that Johnny Cash one? How Johnny played L&M in L&N is what it is. I used to call it the L&M Don't Stop Here Anymore, but I corrected myself when I finally Googled it. Anyway, remember that Johnny one? And he was playing it in E major instead of E minor. <laughs> Johnny. Anyway, uh, I wanted to mention more about it. Look, I'm going to leave it till the second half. Let's get back. Enough about me. Let's talk about me. How you doing? (laughs) So I'm not going to go down the whole I drank thing. 
Okay, let's just let's just leave that for another day. I'm not going to. You're not my AA sponsor here, okay? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I think you know what happened on the weekend. But I will say, I will say that we had a great time on Saturday mountain biking. And I went out for an epic mountain bike ride on this big mountain. And no wipeout, knock on wood, was good. But I haven't been this sore in ages. This reminds me of back when I first started with a personal trainer. And we'd work out and like for the next two days. It was usually the second day, not the day after the workout, but the day after that. That you could barely like sit down in a chair because your 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 butt, your your glutes and your what are they, your hamstrings and quads and everything were just shot. And if you did upper body, you could barely lift your arms. I feel like that from mountain biking. We did twenty one kilometers out on the mountain. Fantastic though. Made it up to the peak three times and then wee all the way down. It was great. And I'm happy about that because uh, I'm trying to live an active lifestyle to counteract all the weird stuff that I put in my donut hole. Speaking of which, I'm on a fast right now. Have you ever done a fast before? I am approaching 24 hours. Yikes. I'm so hungry, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I'm only thinking about food about every 45 seconds or so. I kind of started out, this this all started, uh, well, let's get into the story of it. It was Sunday and I was feeling awful and this was yesterday and I, uh, well, no, I was just tired and sore and I was like, oh man, I got to clean it up. And I watched this video because YouTube's so brilliant and knows exactly what to show you. And there's a guy, I followed him for a while on YouTube. I don't like subscribe to him or anything, but he comes across my radar. YouTube's smart enough you don't have to be subscribed to it. It, it knows what to show you, even if you're not even looking at it in the app. I, I watch it in a, in a browser called Brave in incognito mode, and it still knows what to show me. I guess based on my IP and watch history, etc. There's no escaping the evil AI. It knows all. Anyway, so Dr. Berg, Dr. Berg, I think his name's Dr. Eric Berg. He's kind of like a keto-y, low-carb-y, intermittent fasty type guy. Those are the things that he's always kind of pushing you towards. And the truth of the matter is, for middle-aged people, but I think for anyone, but I mean, I've, everything I've read, I read Fat Chance by David Lustig. I've seen him do lots of talks on it. I've seen tons and tons of Various things backed up about the idea that if you go low-ish carb, you will lose weight. It's just straight up. You can still kind of eat essentially the same amount of food. Just take out those carbs and then particularly the sugar. And anyway, uh, the next step after that is intermittent fasting. So I watched a video about what happens to your body when you do a 72-hour fast and it's pretty neat. It starts to clean out all the cleans out all the gunk. It'll tap into your fatty liver. Hey, hey, fatty liver. You know what I'm talking about. So I thought, all right, let's give it a shot. So I made sure that I um, finished off the leftover pizza last night at 11 p.m. before I started it. Had to get that out of the way. Okay, mainlined a little bit of peanut butter and jam, 
and then straight to bed. How's this sarcasm tonight, eh, by the way? Like, how's my attitude? I'm sorry. I'm just so hungry. I'm so, so hungry. It's brutal. So I haven't eaten all day today. That was the last thing I had was two pieces of pizza standing over the sink. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Don't judge. And uh, and some main mainline peanut butter and jam. I'm ludicrous now from the hunger. And then I went straight to bed and I woke up and I haven't eaten all day today. And it's now... Uh, eight o'clock at night. The kids have gone to sleep. That was the hardest part, dinner. I actually went up and hid in a different room upstairs. I couldn't be around for dinner. It smelled so delicious. There's a variety of leftovers too that all smelled amazing. Some curry and shepherd's pie. But uh, no, I've been pretty good. I've had about three cups of tea today and a bunch of water. And my goal is to make it to tomorrow at lunch. So Let's see how it goes. I'm trying to do a bit of a cleanse. So yeah, those are some of the things that I've been up to recently since the last time we caught up. The mountain bike, fantastic. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be um, not so sore. It's been two full days of really sore, which isn't surprising considering how hard we pushed it up there on the mountain. And it was the only nice day we were going to get for a long time, so we really wanted to make the most of it. Um, I was thinking about a funny thing that happened last night when I was tucking my son in bed. He's developed this new thing where he turns into rage baby, where when he goes to bed, he's all nice and cute and you can get the cuddles and stuff. But then he immediately starts screaming because he wants, he wants you to come back in and pick him up and give him a cuddle. And we have been doing that, but it's just, he just wants more. It's like me with the snacks, right? It's like anything, you, right? You have one, one handful of chips. That was delicious. I need more. It's, it's all coming back to food with me right now. Anyway, you, you got to cut them off at some point and stop the cuddles. And so last night we tried a new thing where we were like, we have to just let him cry it out. I think my wife went in once and kind of gave him a a little cuddle and then was like, no, after that, that's it. And he started to cry and the cries and the shouting, it hit top notes. I haven't heard him make yet. Rage. And anyone who's had a kid go through this phase, you know what it's like. Cause I remember when my daughter did it one time and we were so scared. We were hiding downstairs. We turned off the TV. It's like, it's like we were hiding in our own house from this scary baby, just standing in a crib screaming and the rage of them. And it gets to a point where you're like, I can't go in now. Like, it's too late. It's past that point because they've gotten <laughs> ludicrous. I'm laughing thinking about it because they've gotten ludicrous. And so if you go in and and give in now, they're going to know if I hit this top note, you know, they're going to, I don't know. There's probably psychologists out there that are like, no, you're actually supposed to go in and cuddle them anytime a child was shut up. All right. All right. Harden up. I'm doing the school of, you know, we're, we're, we're hardening them up, okay? And, and it worked with my daughter, actually, and it, it worked with my son last night. He finally, he finally went quiet, and it had been quiet for about 45 minutes or so, and I, I opened up his bedroom door to go in to see how he was doing, 
And literally, as I was like two steps inside the door, he just started to levitate up, like raise himself. He was sleeping on his on his stomach. He just started lifting up onto his hands, like so he's on all fours. And at any second, that head was going to turn around and we were going to make eye contact. And I tell you, my heart jumped into my throat. It was like, it was like I was a cat burglar and I just had a closing call inside the museum with the priceless art in my hand. Like I, I was, I swear I almost had a heart attack and I quickly bolted around and got out of the room and silently pulled the door shut behind me. And I didn't quite get the door to click. And I just froze in the hall because I was so scared that he was just going to start screaming. And I was waiting and waiting. And I'm telling you, if there was a werewolf on the other side of that door, I I still don't think I would have been more frightened. I, I was petrified of him starting to scream like what he had earlier. But anyway, I didn't hear a peep. And my quivering, shaking hand reached up and grabbed the doorknob and just oh so gently shut it. And I went downstairs and told my wife about what had just happened. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been through that. It's brutal. And she reminded me of a time I forgot this happened with our daughter. This would have been a few years ago now. So she said, don't you remember the time I got stuck in her room when she was little? And I was like, no, what happened? You were stuck in there. She goes, yeah, I came in and she like caught me and I hid behind a chair. And then she was like up and bright eyed and bushy tailed and looking all around the room. And I guess my wife didn't know what to do. She didn't want to, she didn't want to leave and wake her up. So she waited behind a chair. Like she's playing hide and go seek, like just sat there for like ages. She said 40 minutes. That seems like a long time, doesn't it? Oh, well, her story. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So it happens. It's a thing for parents. Anyway, it had just happened to me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get stuck in there for 40 minutes. I turned around and hightailed it out just in the nick of time. Anyway, he did it again tonight too. So, But he didn't cry for as long. So hopefully we can wean him off that bad habit. So that was a funny little story that I wanted to share. And you will hear there's some tub tunes tonight. So tonight was interesting because I was doing the fast. I didn't want to I didn't want to be around the food, so my wife cooked dinner tonight and I got to do the bath, which I haven't done in a while. And the bath is fun. Unless there's a turd. If there's a turd, it's no fun. It's no fun for anywhere. Anyone. But uh but there was not a turd. So luckily uh, it was, it was a, it was a fun little tub time, and I went and got the uke, and we were jamming a little bit on the uke, having a good old time, and bathing my kids. That's part of the ritual, and it is exhausting, and I'm exhausted, and I'm going to cut it short tonight. I'm just going to leave you with that. It was fun catching up. Look at that! I didn't even finish my cup of lemon. Lemon and ginger tea. Speaking of that, that was one thing I was going to mention. Did you ever see the Curb Your Enthusiasm where Susie would do that every time? It was when Larry was a social assassin. Do you watch Curb? 
the greatest comedy of all time. Well, Seinfeld, maybe. But I love Curb, Larry David. Anyway, there was one where, if you know the one I'm talking about, it was pretty good. Susie was, uh, every time she would take a drink of her coffee, she would go, <laughs> like that. And, uh, and Larry was kind of commissioned by Susie's daughter to address that with Susie. And, you know, Susie's so horrible and so mean and so quick to fly off the handle. And the daughter was like, I'm too scared to say something, but you could say something to her because this is the one where he was the social assassin and he would say whatever was on his mind to people because he gave that girl a hard time for saying LOL, LOL, Larry. And the girl was, by the way, was, uh, was Janice from Friends. I think Ross went out with her for ages. Janice on Friends. And uh, was she not... Was she not the one that Jerry dated that had a laugh like Elmer Fudd sitting on a juicer? Is that, isn't that the same actress? Anyway, I'm rambling. Larry said it to her. And, of course, Susie blew up and it was a great one. Social Assassin. So next time we talk, you'll know whether or not I made it till tomorrow with this fast or not. I'm holding out hope. And uh, am I feeling good? No, I'm feeling exhausted, grumpy, tired, and weak. But I'm, I'm listening to the advice of Dr. Eric Berg and hoping that some good stuff will come out of this, a bit of system cleansing. Let's leave it on that and move into the music. I said I wasn't going to do it, and I'm doing it. I said I wasn't going to do any more minor key songs. I'm going straight into one. I would argue Hallelujah is a minor key song. It hangs out in the, uh, on the root quite a bit, and there's a lot of the four chord in this song. But come on, this is, uh, this is a pretty kind of sad, dirgy, depressing song, and I'm doing it. <laughs> I lied. I said I wasn't going to, and I am. Just This is the same thing that I used to do when I used to play live and people were in the, in the early 90s when I was a young man. I talked about this in the last episode and I'd be up there on the stage and I would say, these people look too happy. They are here to drink beer and have a good time and I'm going to punish them for thinking of coming out. It's their bad luck that I'm on the stage tonight. I'm going to punish you with my sad introspective songs. I, I'm doing this because I realized when I got to the end of last week's episode that I hadn't recognized where I got this whole shtick from, this entire kind of theme, the idea of songs moving through people and changing and becoming something different as they travel from one person to another over many years, decades, generations. So I'm going to give a shout out to where I've heard it before, where I got the concept from, and there will be a link in the video. And this is for a podcast that Malcolm Gladwell did, uh, and he has a series of podcasts called Revisionist History, and it's fantastic. There's so much in there for you to pour over, and I'm sure he's on Spotify and all the usual places. So Malcolm Gladwell... Revisionist history. He did an episode on the song Hallelujah, and it ended up inspiring me so much. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of do 
a podcast that explores musical topics because I found his episode about this song so fascinating. So I am just going to get straight into a few of the points that Malcolm Gladwell makes in his podcast because it relates to last week's episodes about episode about the songs The Days of 49 and The Yellin' and Don't Stop Here Anymore. And so throughout those episodes, I was making the point that these are songs that were written by one person and quite often made fun, more famous by another person who'd covered it, sometimes in a different key, sometimes with a different melody. And that's the essence of folk songs, as Pete Seeger put it at some point. I can't remember when I heard Pete Seeger talk about that, that that's where folk music comes from. That's why it gets its name, folk. It's music for the folks. And I'm going to give a brief, brief synopsis of what he says uh, and the point that he makes and just the, the highlight reel of Gladwell's podcast. And by the way, I am going to do a major key song after Hallelujah. I'm going to do Come a Long Way by Michelle Schacht, and we'll just look at that one a little bit. The simplicity of it, how I think it's a, a stronger song than uh, The LNN Don't Stop Here Anymore. She wrote this one, Come a Long Way, and it tells a fantastic story. Uh, it's got everything in it, and when I looked over it just now, looking over the lyrics, uh, it's a Springsteen song. That's She wrote a Springsteen song, and good honor. We will get to come a long way in a bit. Let's let's just look at the highlight reel right now of what. And if you don't know who Malcolm Gladwell is, he's uh, he's a Canadian. He's uh, a pretty prolific book writer. He writes for the New Yorker articles. His books are always about kind of offbeat topics. His big famous one that I think kind of made him soar to heights, put him in front of everyone, was. Um, the 10,000 hour one, it's called the tipping point. And I'm pretty sure that's the one where he, no, that's outliers. I think is, is the one where he talks about the 10,000 hours. The tipping point is another one that's, uh, I can't, I'm not even going to describe it. The Google him, look up Malcolm Gladwell. He's got a bunch of great books. To be honest, I preferred outliers over the tipping point because I'm quite certain I don't know. Don't don't <laughs> don't bet your life on this. But I'm pretty certain that Outliers is the book where he talks about how people become the top of their game uh, earlier than other people, and how how people certain people like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, the Beatles, they reached this this level that just surpassed everyone else. They were an outlier in their field. And that's where he comes up with the 10,000 hour rule, because what he's saying is by the time everyone else is just figuring out this is a game that they should be playing, these guys have already put in their 10,000 hours. They're so good. They're so proficient at it. They're masters of their craft and they're just ready to kind of exploit the marketplace and they sail past everyone in the competitive space. And he applies that to how both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates had access to computers very, very early on, which gave them a leg up. And I thought the best one was the Beatles, how when he says the Beatles went to Germany, they, um, 
they learned during this kind of really intense time in Germany, how to just be masters of the craft of performing live. And they came back from Germany, a completely different band, and they put in their 10,000 hours. And that's what made them just sail right past everyone else in that space. Well, what Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his podcast about Hallelujah, he starts by saying Leonard Cohen wrote this song. And it's not that old. I mean, I I think it's from the mid-90s or something. And he wrote a beautiful poem. And the production of the song is, is neat. It's a little bit clunky. And I think the version that we all know is the Jeff Buckley version. And so Gladwell talks about how the song kind of reached Buckley's ears and came out of him. And it was this old Leonard Cohen version that then got covered by J.J. Cale, a blues artist. The J.J. Cale version is quite different from the Leonard Cohen version. That J.J. Cale uh, version is on an album that is in the record collection of the house where Jeff Buckley, as a young guy, just as he's starting to kind of come up and get signed, he's staying at this woman's house who has a young child. And Buckley, he's young at this point, and he's, you know, early or mid-20s, and he's, you know, broke, and he's babysitting. He's there babysitting for her. He's living in this house. He flips through her, her record collection. He hears the J.J. Cale version of Hallelujah, and he does a, his own cover of it, which I think most would argue is the kind of the known cover of it. And when you hear the Buckley cover of it, first of all, there's a lot of things about it that are amazing. His voice, he had this gorgeous high voice. He's got a lot of echo. It's just him and the guitar. The electric, it's him on an electric guitar, which is neat because generally you don't just get vocal accompaniment with an electric guitar. It's hard to get, it's hard to get that kind of dynamic from an electric. An acoustic guitar gives you tons of dynamics, but an electric is a different art form. And he plucks the strings and he does some beautiful finger picking on it. And he stretches out the very end and he takes it to lows and he makes it really quiet. And if you haven't heard the Jeff Buckley version of Hallelujah, please go out and listen to it, along with the Malcolm Gladwell podcast about Hallelujah. So I'm just kind of touching on that because I feel that in my last episode, like I said, it, it I hadn't addressed the fact that Malcolm Gladwell did this whole podcast about songs moving through people and over the years, and and I wanted to recognize him, and I thought it was worth looking at this song. So Hallelujah has been done many times over the years by many people, and when it came across my radar, it was in the movie Shrek, and it was the early 2000s, and now I can't remember, is it from the first Shrek or the second? I think it might be the, sh- the second Shrek. Shrek 2. And it's again a different version. But it's not the Buckley one. But at the same time, that song sort of became ubiquitous. It was kind of everywhere for a little while there in the early 2000s. I had heard it on the Shrek soundtrack. 
but also a friend, if you'll remember the early 2000s, if you can remember then. That was the early days of the iPod. And a friend of mine had just bought an iPod and he thought they were so great. And he put a whole bunch of music, I think, onto a drive and gave it to me. At the time, music was valued a lot more than what it is now because now everything's just on your fingertips on Spotify. Back then, if you wanted new songs, you had to seek it out. Somebody still bought a CD and then ripped it and digitized it. That's what I was doing back then. I had bought a new laptop. It was $4,000 for my old Toshiba laptop. And one of the reasons why I got it was so I could rip all my CDs and put them onto my new slash old iPod. I still have that iPod. It was, I think it was, it was a Gen 1, I guess. Yeah, fantastic. I still have it. I bet it still works too. So he put the Jeff Buckley version, this friend of mine put the Jeff Buckley version on a disc or somehow I got, I got a hold of it and I started listening to it. And I, of course, was immediately converted to a fan. And I thought, well, I need to play this song now. So I sat down and learned how to play it. Uh, and I play it capoed on the fifth fret. It's the only song I've ever played capoed that high on the guitar on the fifth fret in order to get the chimey sounds that he gets. And we played it live. And even though it was uh, almost a decade after my, um, my punishing the audience with the minor key songs, I still played this, this dirgy one live, but people loved it. It always went down well, and people would kind of put their arms around each other and sing along to it. Now, there's one more neat kind of point that Gladwell makes about the difference between Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and I, I want to mention it because this, this one really stuck with me. In this, he talks about different painters, and he says, you know, Everyone knows of Picasso because Picasso was so prolific and he went through, you know, his different periods and phases in his life and he would just churn out these paintings, painting after painting after painting, do multiple in a day. And he was, he was prolific in that sense. The art just kind of flowed out of him. And that's the type of guy he was. And he wasn't kind of shooting for perfection. He was just he was just expressing himself and he was happy sometimes with it being imperfect. He just, he just made it and he was prolific. Cezanne, on the other hand, now, apparently the thing with Cezanne was that he would do, when, after he died, they found multiple versions of the same painting over and over and over again. Even if it was a portrait of a person, he would continue to try and capture some essence. There was something that would force him to stop and go back and start it over again, having just changed one or two things slightly. It was as though he had a vision in his mind and he wanted to express that vision. And if he was starting to kind of come off the tracks, he'd stop and he'd redo the painting. And it would take him, you know, obviously at that rate, ages to make a painting. And so in his podcast, Gladwell talks about how Bob Dylan is more of a Picasso and Leonard Cohen is more of a Cezanne. And he tells an anecdote about how the two of them finally met at some time in like the early 80s. 
and they were complimenting each other on on their songwriting. And Leonard Cohen said, I really like that song, I and I. How long did it take you to write that song? And if, if you don't know that one, it's on the album Infidels, early, 80, early 80s, and it's fantastic. Been a long time since a strange woman slept in my bed. Love it. I love it. <laughs> so... Dylan replied, uh, oh, it took me like 20 minutes to write that song. And then Dylan said, I like this song. And I think it was Hallelujah. I like Hallelujah. Or another epic Cohen one. Okay, you know, long masterpiece song. He said, how long did it take you to write that? And Leonard Cohen said, oh, about five years. But he candidly told someone else off the record, it actually was more like 10 years. (laughs) He'd kicked around the song for 10 years. I have been on both sides of of that aspect of songwriting. I have had them just pour out of me immediately and I have toiled over them for years and years. And I will tell you the first one by far is the better one to just have it and be done with it. Just go, ugh, whatever. And if it's great, it's great. And if it's not great, that's fine. I'll write another but carrying around a song for years and years and years and having it uh, change key sometimes and toiling over it. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to move through your life walking around with this half-finished piece of art that you're holding out a hope is going to maybe wind up materializing better than what you're, the status that it currently is. That's what's problematic about never just letting go and just finishing something. And ultimately, when you do sit down and say, I'm going to finish this, it doesn't live up to what you hoped you were going to make, which is why you never finished it. But there's a kind of clunky expression I heard on a different podcast that says, great is the enemy of good. And I agree with that. Um, You sometimes just have to accept that it's not going to be great, but it's going to be done and it'll be good. And then you can move on to the next one. Well, when we're talking about Hallelujah and I and I and Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, there is no good. It's all great. I heard there was a secret chord David played and it pleased the Lord You don't really care for music, do ya? Goes like this The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift The baffled king composing hallelujah Hallelujah Hallelujah, hallelujah. I have my own favorite verses for that, my own version that I like to do to keep it short enough to play live. Uh, but I'm going to do the second verse now, but I'm going to do it on the on the ukulele. 
And as I was saying in an earlier one of these, there's certain songs that uh, are so fun and easy that when you jump on a new instrument, it's nice to try and bang out that song on a different instrument. And this is one of the, when I was learning to play the uke, this is one of the early ones that I adopted as a, a uke song. And there's a neat seven chord in there that I quite that I quite like. It's the only place on the uke, the only time on the uke that I play that chord. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do verse two on the uke. Here we go. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew ya. Tied you to your kitchen chair She broke your throne, she cut your hair And from your lips she drew the hallelujah 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 Seemed like I just got the hang of it right at the end of the verse. That's one of my favorite um, songs to play when my when I'm giving my kids a bath. I call them tub tunes, and I have a repertoire of uke songs that I play when they're in the tub because um, I don't want to bring a guitar into the bathroom and have it get all soaking wet and splashy and wrecked, and it's a bit cumbersome and awkward. But a uke, on the other hand is a good little accompaniment for for a little bathtub pate, which, if you're a parent, you know you have every night at 6 p.m. sharp. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So that's one of my tub tunes is I like to play. It's always a fun one to run through. And now because my daughter watches Shrek, she recognizes it from Shrek, so she loves it. So there we have it. The point has been made. Songs move through people over time. And Hallelujah certainly did. I didn't play it as beautifully as Jeff Buckley, but few could. Um, he does a whole neat thing on the guitar that I never bothered to learn with the finger picking. And I just use a flat pick rather than finger picking technique and kind of do a bit of a waltzy type strum. I'm going to move on now to... As promised, a song in a major key. Now, it's kind of a tricky one uh, to figure out what she's playing. It's not a tricky song at all. It's an easy song. But what is Michelle playing here? It sounds to me like she's she's in C. She's up quite high uh, for a man to sing. She's She's right in a nice spot for her voice. But... For me, obviously, I would almost want to transpose to a different key, but my problem with transposing keys for songs is that then it changes how beautifully it sounds on the guitar. So, and I'm kind of a purist for that. I mean, you certainly can't change ACDC songs, and even the Stones, it's a bit sacrilege. Alright, so let's do this one in, in C and uh, honor the original key that she did it in. 
but I will sing it an octave lower. Kicked in his door at 5 a.m. I come for my bike, I told the repo man. My 920's gonna take me far today. You can travel for miles and never leave LA. I come a long way, I come a long way. I've come 500 miles today. I come a long way, I come a long way. Never even left LA. good I think well I faded it out there because I didn't want to get done for copyright and full disclosure had a bit of a lyrical crap out there so <laughs> I chipped over my tongue what a great song though I adore it I would love to play it but could I find the right key for it because that's too low and it's, it feels like it would have to come up quite a bit. Would it change the song? I don't know. It would be nice to have harmony. But it's a great song. I love a story song. And uh, this one tells a great story. But what's really neat about this song is that you've got a verse and a chorus, much like what we were talking about in L&N, Don't Stop Here Anymore, and Days of 49, where the verse and the chorus are kind of the same chords underneath, but... The vocals is doing something different, kind of letting you recognize, hey, this is the chorus. And, and what a hook in this one. I've come a long way. I've come a long way. I've gone 500 miles today. I've come a long way. I've come a long way and never even left L.A., which is funny because we know that L.A. is a massive, sprawling city that just has kind of no beginning and no end. And um, yeah, I love the story that she's she's telling about how she... She came to take her bike, her her motorcycle back off the repo man, and go for a big ride. And I, I'm going to read the lyrics because I think they're wonderful. And there's a lot of there's a lot of Springsteen lines in here. All right, let's take it from the third verse here. There's some neat poetry going on here, uh, and a lot of a lot of Springsteen. And I'm seeing a little bit of Dylan in here. The river she runs by the railroad tracks. I swear I'll never take it back. A train, she cries, on the midnight hour, all along the watchtower. I gunned it down to San Pedro Bay, watched my ship sail in, watched her sail away. The sun was sinking into the sea, but a ball of fire inside of me was burning my motor and driving me hard, past the big hair on the boulevard, and up Mulholland where I made the scene, like the one that took little Jimmy Dean. And then I shimmied up Wiltshire like a little silkworm, past the rodeo and the pachyderm, and then I stopped for coffee at an art ca cafe. I saw the repo man and made my getaway. Doing the Eagle Rock heading for the hills. Oh, try to let my engines cool. And it's not my fault that this town shakes. I saw the fallen rock and I hit my brakes. And then the chorus and this uh, kind of outro verse says, Now you tow it to the repo man's front door and you give him these keys. I don't need them no more. Tow it to the repo man's front door, give him these keys. I don't need them no more. 
I never really paid attention to what those lyrics all mean. I think it's fantastic. Um, I love that she drove her motorcycle all around town and then ran into this character, this repo man. And you can see it as a, as a screenplay. You can see it in video form and it would be very entertaining. And then as she's trying to make her escape, there's an earthquake or at least a landslide and rocks on the ground. And uh, she wipes the bike out, obviously wrecks it and says, all right, well, I'm done with it. There you go. <laughs> Have it back. Wonderful. I honestly never was aware of what all those, all those lyrics were. That's the first time I've really read it that way. So I promised a happy song. I think that is a happy song. I think she wins in the end, right? She got to ride her bike one last time. She came a long way, 500 miles today, all around L.A., so there it is. I've been saying for a few weeks now that it's much harder to write a great song that's in a major key and tells a story and draws a listener in and has a big chorus and is meaningful and can give you those goosebumps and tick all those boxes. It's much harder to do that in a major key than in a minor key. In a minor key, you get the minor key cheat code, as I called it, the minor key bump. It's already kind of cool because you're playing it in sad chords. And that is, you've already got that going on your side. Like in Hotel California, Don Henley, I know what you guys are doing. Actually, I think uh, Don Felder wrote that one. But we know what we know what the Dons were up to, okay? We put it in a minor key we already get bonus points for that. Minor Keys Rock. One of my favorite songs, The Twilight Zone by Golden Earring, B minor. Rebel Yell, Billy Idol, B minor. Like a Stone, Audio Slave. Not sure, A minor? You know what, I've never sat down and... I did figure it out at one point, but it was 10 years ago. Anyway, Minor Keys give you a bump in the first place because they're they're already kind of compelling. You ever seen uh, Spinal Tap when uh, Nigel Tufnell is playing the piano for Rob Reiner and, and he says, I wrote this one in D minor. I find that D minor is the saddest of all the keys. And he plays this, and it is true. I, I agree with him. D minor is a really sad key, perhaps the saddest of all the keys. And... Then he plays this beautiful, sad piece of music and he says, what's that one called? He goes, that's called Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> Classic. So I've discussed it. I think I've proven the point. You can write a great song in a major key, but it's harder. And I think she did it with that song, Come a Long Way. I think it's a better song than the LNN Don't Stop Here Anymore. And when I think of Michelle Shocked, I think of that one. I think it come a long way because it's produced really well and it sounds great. I just It's a great song by her. Uh, two others that I love by her are Anchorage and Memories of East Texas. Both, both songs tell stories and yeah, a lot of story songs. She's a story song writer and, and, and those songs draw you in. And I love story songs. That's the essence of folk music. And what I was saying earlier about the, 
the Springsteen lines in that song, I think, I think it's pretty obvious if you're a Springsteen fan. Uh, burning my motor and driving me hard. Um, there's there's a number of lines there where I just thought, oh man, she took a big a big dose of Born to Run before she wrote this. But hey, that's okay. That's that is fine if you're going to be inspired by anyone. I mean, he really set the bar with a lot of his stuff. And yeah, maybe we'll get to one of him in the future. I guess there's really only one thing left that we need to discuss about this song, about the lyrics. And that's, what the heck is a pachyderm? I've wondered that for 20 years since that Seinfeld episode. (laughs) Do you know the one I mean? Where they're, they're laughing about some joke and a pachyderm and juggling pizzas. He's jug and then the pachyderm. And I was like, I always meant to kind of figure out what that is. And there it is. There's that word again. Written around the same era too. Was it a big was it a big thing? Were we talking about pachyderms back then? Past the road AO and the pachyderm. Alright, I've Googled it. Here's the thing. It's kind of like an elephant, like an animal. It's from a Greek word. But it also means skin. So I think it means a skin doctor. So I think a pachyderm, because I don't think that she would have been shimmying up Wilshire like a little silkworm past the rodeo and literally a 19th century elephant. I don't think, I don't know, but pictures of some kind of elephant came up. But I don't think that's what she's, I think she's talking about a pachyderm in this case would be a skin doctor's studio or, or office or clinic or whatever. I'm going to go with that. That really annoyed me, though. I, I had to figure out what a pachyderm was. There we go. It's, I've solved it for us. That's it. We've said it all, as Howard Stern says. We've yented it up. Yep. I'm enjoying doing these. This is episode five. We're on a bit of a roll. And uh, I will see you next week in the next one. It was good talking at you.